Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. Entering into Philistine country, Abraham, once again, like he had done before, introduces his wife to the locals as his sister. Technically, she was a sister to him, but also a wife. So he chose to go with one story and not tell the whole truth. And this was, once again, like before, it was an effort to keep the locals from maybe becoming jealous of his wife and endangering his life. So he thought, if I just introduce her as my sister, then... They won't bother me. It, it, it kind of blows our mind how he can rationalize that and think this is not going to cause problems and inconvenience for his wife and for him as long as his life is safe. So it doesn't seem like a, a well-thought-out plan. But nevertheless, the, the king, Abimelech, sees Sarah, and, and like the time before, he, the king of, like the king of Egypt did, he takes Sarah, thinking, well, this is just the man's sister. She's available. And he moves Sarah into his palace, if that's where the king lived, and kept her there, kind of like in his stable of women. And the king, God spoke to King Abimelech in a dream and warned him that his life was in grave danger for having another man's wife. Uh, Abimelech responded to the Lord, and he pleaded innocent. He said, I didn't know this was another man's wife, so God gave him a pass, and uh, providing that from this point on, he makes the right decision. Now, there's a big taboo here, and that is there's abundant evidence from historical documents that in the ancient Near East, uh, literature found coming from Egypt, Mesopotamia, Canaan, that adultery was considered a great sin. Now, even in these cultures that were not based on the religion of the one and only God, they still considered adultery an intolerable sin. Hittite laws, Middle Assyrian laws, the Code of Hammurabi, all three contained legislation against adultery. So that kind of gives you a context for why Abimelech was uh, very alarmed that he was right on the cusp of committing adultery, even though the Bible makes it clear that they had not slept together yet. Like I said, that's the reason I said she was kind of in the stable. Uh, He had not brought her in to him. So it wasn't quite yet a marriage consummated. Now, there's a side note here. When I tell you this about this, considered this great sin, notice how we point to legal legislation prohibiting 
moral, immoral conduct. And, and take note, if, if you're thinking like me, take note of the history of the United States when there were laws that prohibited what we considered immoral conduct. There were laws on the books against adultery, fornication, sodomy, laws against homosexuality. And most of these laws have been stricken from the books because there's this new mentality that prefers to have the government stay out of our personal private business. You see, they reasoned that if there's a law against adultery, who's going to be the bedroom police? And who's going to run around and enforce these laws? How are they going to enforce these laws? So they, they figured that was an intrusion in our privacy and with a mentality of this is a democratic form of government. Technically, we're a republic because of the design uh, of our government. But uh, in a democratic form of government, uh, they didn't want the government intruding on our bedroom, what we did in private, like Big Brother sees everything. So gradually, we begin to develop a mentality, even though from the beginning of the writing of our Constitution and the states uh, having certain state rights and the writing of their individual constitutions, they put down laws against immoral conduct. Now, the trend is to get rid of laws regulating immoral conduct and just leaving that up to the individuals and their responsibility. And people applaud this. They think this is a great thing. We don't want the government involved in that. Now, see, as a Christian, we have probably should have struggles, do have struggles, probably should have struggles with this whole concept. The reason and the rationale behind this is, well, now you don't want the government uh, imposing what they believe is moral laws to regulate you if those are not the kind of moral laws that you believe in. Let's take Islam and Sharia law. They have a, a code of laws that uh, certainly is different from ours in views of what is right and wrong and, and the degree of punishment. So you don't want to live in a country ruled by Sharia law. That's their opinion of what is morally right and morally wrong. Uh, women are severely beaten for exposing their face. or something. So that's, that's a moral code they've got. You don't want the government imposing that on you. But, you know, from a personal, uh, selfish self uh, uh, point of view, I don't mind the government imposing Christian values because Judeo-Christian values because I believe those are absolute values that are good for society. So uh, the, the risk, they say, is if you have a kind of government that can do that, then what if it flip-flops? Well, yeah, that would be a bad thing. But what if it doesn't? What if this is a, a, a nation that is largely sympathetic to Christianity? What is wrong with having laws that reinforce morality for the greater good of all? So this, this new philosophy in transforming the law in the United States has its own set of dangers we must contend with. You cannot successfully, completely separate moral codes from legislation without creating other problems. 
Now, they, that was built into so many uh, governmental laws in ancient times, and throughout centuries, laws have in included uh, regulation uh, about moral conduct, yet we're living in the United States of America where we're trying to separate that out, just purely uh, amoral laws and rules and regulations whether have anything to do with appealing to the, the uh, biblical-based uh, values. Uh, here's the problem. We still have a few laws that are based on uh, regulating moral immoral conduct. Uh, just think about it for a minute. Prostitution is still illegal. Why? On what basis? Because we feel that's an immoral thing. Yet the whole philosophy behind striking, striking moral laws from the, from the laws of the land uh, would you would think would include prostitution. Let somebody make a living any way they want to. Let everybody go spend the money any way they want to. That's the libertarian mentality. It's none of my business. Whatever they do in private is none of my business. Why is the government still involved in prostitution? How many of you are glad they are? Because it has a detrimental effect on our society if we don't set laws and regulations and say certain things are just not tolerable in this culture, in this society. It's not good for our society. Yet who wants to argue, well, let's uh, legalize it because the government doesn't have any business. I think all of us here have enough interest in that and say, that's, that's good, let's keep it. Well, let's think about another one. What about uh, incest? We have laws against incest. We have laws against polygamy. Don't those, aren't those just like the other laws? Just let people do whatever people want to do. It's their business. And if it's, if it's incest and relatives want to get married, just uh, make sure that they are incapable of reproducing and let them do whatever they want to do. We, we don't like that. It doesn't settle with us. We have this law based on a moral code. What about uh, the legal age for drinking alcohol? Why is it arbitrarily set at 21 in some states, 18 in some states? Why not 17? Why not 16? Why not 15? Why not 14? See, there's an arbitrary decision here. And so we applaud it because somebody's trying to make some sort of a, a moral law to protect our, our society. What about purchasing tobacco? Uh, there are uh, third world countries, other places, where uh, any, any child can get a hold of a cigarette can smoke. Why in the United States don't we just uh, let children do it? Because we have an interest in that, in preserving our society. What about uh, having uh, the, the proper age? the legal age for having consensual sex. See, there's a lot of things that we are still clinging to, a sense of morality, and so it's, it's a little bit uh, disingenuous, a little bit dishonest for us to look at some of the things we've gotten rid of and say, well, I'm so glad that we've taken adultery and fornication off the books and those are no longer illegal uh, acts because the well, government has any business. But look at these. You're glad the government has business in that, aren't you? So here's the problem. We are living in an imperfect world, and we do have, uh, I suppose, the, the chance of, uh, if you have a government like that that imposes morals on people, that if you get the wrong people in charge, they're going to impose the wrong morals. I understand that. But one of these days, what I'm looking forward to is whenever God comes, and he rules, and his rules are the rules. 
then nobody's going to have any, any uh, ability to complain and change things. It's going to be God's way. So that's kind of what I'm looking forward to. The ancients had these kind of laws against such things as adultery and homosexuality because they deeply believed it was vital to preserving their society. And I think at this point we don't care much about preserving our society as much as we do preserving personal liberties. And that's a conflict we'll probably never be able to resolve. Let me move to the next point I want to make. That's why I said we've got this uh, sermonic personal application for part of the things I see here. Uh, considering Abraham's upbringing, he was raised as a total heathen, an idolater, it probably should not be that shocking to us that he goes into Egypt and lies about his wife, and then he goes into Philistine country and lies about his wife, and we want to look the father of our faith and think much better of him. But considering where he came from and the fact that just because God spoke to him and told him to move out of the earth of the Chaldees and go to a promised land somewhere, he did not immediately become a mature spiritual giant. He was still a man in development. God was still teaching him, training him, developing him spiritually. So he did these things, and yes, he had all of these flaws, but he, Considering being raised as a total heathen in an idolatrous family, uh, we still see that old life and that old mentality manifesting itself from time to time. God was gradually transforming this refugee from heathenism into the man of God that he wanted him to be. So Abraham seems to be very comfortable with this this tactic of introducing his wife as his sister to avoid personal conflict. And it's something that we can, we can maybe safely assume that this was something they did where they came from. He learned it from his family, from his upbringing, and he brought this practice with him, and God has not yet spoken to Abraham in clear and certain terms and said, don't you ever do that again. So he continues to bring the old heathen ways with him in this new location. He's gradually leaving the old life behind. And so maybe uh, as we see this, we, we, maybe we're expecting too much out of Abraham. Uh, maybe he was just going with custom that at this point he doesn't yet understand all the do's and don'ts of serving God. And you're going to find as we go on a little bit farther, Isaac picked this up, did the same thing introduce his wife, misleading is his sister. So like father, like son. And the reason I bring this out is these are family traditions that there's not a one of us here. They're not impacted by family traditions. Your family does certain things, and that's a real temptation to normalize that. It's a real temptation to say, I'm not going to speak against that. My mom does this. My dad does this. My aunt and uncle does this. I mean, we can think of a number of things that families do, and we give them a pass because it's family. Not only do we give them a pass, we adopt that as normal and acceptable because it's family. It's easy to justify wrong behavior if our parents set the example before us. It's immensely difficult to look objectively at our parents and ever come to the conclusion and saying what they did 
was not right and I will not follow in their footsteps. That takes a lot of moral courage to be able to do that. It would have taken a lot of moral courage for Isaac to look at his father Abraham and say, you know, I really love you, but that deal about passing your wife off as a sister, that's just no good. So he bought into it. Dad did it. Why can't I do it? And after all, you can justify that. Dad did it, and he's getting a big inheritance from God. Why can't I do it and get a big inheritance from God? I've officiated many funerals. One of the most common things I see in funerals is when it comes time to eulogize the deceased. And when family gets up to eulogize the deceased, and instead of thinking of all the good things that they may have done or said, they start bringing up the shady side and the naughty side and think that that brings them great honor. And I just sit there really embarrassed as a pastor to listen to them to talk about these naughty little stories about grandma, grandpa, mom, dad. Now, you didn't know this, but this is their dark side. And that's why we loved them so much. You've been to funerals. You've seen that. But let's get real. Let's get real. Do you really want to honor that as acceptable behavior and the things that really endear them to you, Grandma could sure hold her liquor. She could drink any man under the table. She was the best grandma ever. Mom loved everybody. When she got mad, she could cuss a blue streak, but oh, we loved her so much. That's what made us love her. She was real. It's one thing to say that we love them in spite of their faults, and it's quite another to say we admire them because of their faults. And the worst thing is to perpetuate their faults for another generation because after all, they ordained it. Mom did it and mom can never be wrong. Grandma did it and who will ever say grandma's wrong? And I said it takes a lot of moral courage to stand up against the traditions of your family and say I love them dearly but I cannot advocate for what they did, how they talked, the actions they did. You know, Dad may have been kind of a sly guy. He may uh, take advantage to steal a little something from the company once in a while, bring home a tool once in a while, bring along, and, and you just grew up believing, well, it can't be that bad. I loved my dad. I, I think I will carry that tradition on and teach my kids how to take advantage of the company you work for. Yeah, we, I know we understand. We, we love mom and dad. We love grandpa and grandma. And it's sad when our love for them leads us to believe they just can't do any wrong. And it's even sadder when we adopt that behavior like Isaac did from Abraham. S somebody needs to be strong enough and bold enough and courageous enough in view of what is absolutely objectively right and wrong according to God's word to stand up and say, I love my mom and our dad, but this, this is going to stop right here. We're not going to do this anymore. We're not going to give this to another generation. Somebody needs to be brave enough to break bad family traditions. Our morality doesn't come from mom and dad and grandma and grandpa. Our morality comes from God. What does God want for us? What 
pleases him. And you might have to stand against your family when you take such a stand. And they'll call you all kinds of names and think you're a killjoy and a, a party killer. But somebody has got to stop this nonsense. You can't have generation after generation of horse thieves. It's just not going to work. And one more point on this subject before I move on. Parents, if you have modeled the wrong behavior before your kids, you have one job. <laughs> repent. Repent before God and repent before your kids and pull them together and tell them, I blew it. I know that you know what I did. And I'm here to tell you I was wrong. And I want to ask your forgiveness for setting the wrong example. And I want to tell you, do not follow me. I made my own mistakes. And I don't want you to think it's okay. And you know, that's a tough and humbling thing to do. But the sooner you do that, the sooner you pull your family together and say, look, the fact that I've made some mistakes is a matter of record. It's a matter of plain history in this family. But I am here to set the record straight. I'm not going to sweep this under the rug. Rug, I'm not going to let you deify me for this. I want to, I want to, I want to settle, set the record straight right now. I was wrong. Don't you do it. How many times, people, men here, have you opened your mouth and your dad came out? <laughs> Women, how many times you opened your mouth and your mom came out? And it was not good then. When mom did it, not good when you did it. But you, we become so many, in so many ways, we become our parents. And my dad had such a tremendous influence over my life. Uh, right or wrong, good or bad, he had tremendous influence. And there were things that my dad did that I do not want to perpetuate and pass on to my kids so they continue for generations to act like my dad, to act like me. So my dad was a very hard man to please. I grew up becoming a, uh, a workaholic and a perfectionist trying to achieve approval from my father. And it has shaped me into who I am today. I'm constantly trying to be perfect because I was never good enough. My dad made love a carrot on a stick. It was, it was right out there in front of me, but I had to perform to get it. His approval was a carrot on a stick. If you achieve this, you get my approval. If you achieve this, you get my love. So I was always striving, always pushing forward, always trying to get it. The love was conditional in my family. I had to earn it. I had to be worthy of it. I never in my upbringing felt like my dad loved me unconditionally. I never felt like I could come home and tell, me any kind, tell him any kind of failure I had because I felt like if I told dad, he would not love me anymore. I didn't have that comfort and that assurance that I could fail and he would still love me. And so that has impacted me. And I began to hear these things come out of my mouth when I was raising my boys. And finally, I had to sit my three boys down and have a serious talk with them. Now they're four years apart incrementally, so all the way from like 12 years old to eight years old to four years old. You can see the, the span of, of years here. And I had to sit them down, and I had this serious talk with them. And, and I said, boys, I want to let you know something. 
I said, I, I know I'm, I'm very demanding. I know I want the best from you. You know, I, I picked this up from where I, I grew up. But I, I said, I have to tell you this. Listen to me. I said, no matter what you do, no matter how you fail, I, I want to tell you right now, I will always love you. I will not always approve of everything you do, but I will always love you, and nothing can change that. You understand? And they sit there not having a clue what I was talking about. They go, <laughs> I know they had to go away and say, what was that all about? It was about me making it a matter of family record. As they would grow, they would have to remember that no matter what they did, I was not going to take my love away from them. I was going to continue to love them. And I said, you may hurt me like I can't even describe. I'm still going to love you. I want to prove, but I'll love you. And nobody in this world can love you like your parent could love you. Had to call my son up. He was in the Navy. And things began to come back in my mind of things that I had done where I did the carrot on the stick thing. My son wrestled for four years. My oldest son wrestled for four years in high school. And he was a horrible wrestler. He was an embarrassing wrestler. And my wife and I for two years sat on the bleachers and watched him wrestle meat after meat after meat and get pinned and pinned and pinned and pinned and pinned and pinned. <laughs> It wasn't until halfway through his, well, I can't say halfway through his, it wasn't until his third year that he had about 50-50 record because now he's a junior and he's wrestling some freshman. And he's got a little more experience, so he begins to get a few wins along the way. His senior year, he had mostly a winning record. He might only have lost one or two matches that entire year. So he comes like to almost one of the last matches of his senior year and he got a little self-assured, a little cocky and he was playing around, messing around with this wrestler from Trinity and he would take him down and let him up and then he's going to try some fancy moves and he, my son had him down as the, the maximum number of points before you just end the match. I mean he had him down so many points he had this thing so he's going to try a fancy move that he'd never tried before, and he tried the move and flipped him over, got on his back, and the kid pinned him. And my son lost a ridiculous loss. And he came back to the stands, and I was so irate with him, he sat down, and I got up, and I left. I marched out of there. I was so angry with him. So he graduated from school and went to uh, Navy, and I got to thinking, what was wrong with me? that I had to treat him like that. And I talked to him on the phone. I said, Aaron, I ask your forgiveness. I said, I walked out. I was not the parent I should have been. I could have told you that was a stupid thing to do, son. <laughs> but you lost, and that's the penalty. But I had to make it personal. I said, Aaron, I said, I have to ask your forgiveness. And Aaron says, What's the big deal, Dad? <laughs> I said, it's a big deal to me because I don't want you ever duplicating that for your kids. Will you forgive me? He said, well, sure, if that's what you need. That's what I need. <laughs> I said, parents, if you've modeled the wrong behavior, I don't care if it's 10 years ago. I don't care if it's 20 years ago. 
If you can remember when you modeled the wrong behavior for your children, and I don't care if they're grown adults, it's not too late for you to sit down and say, we need to have a talk. You don't know how clean and how refreshing that will make you feel that you have taken time to set the record straight. So I've done a lot of dumb things in my life, but I want to sit down and make the record straight right now between you and me. I am sorry. I set the wrong example for you. I ask you to forgive me, and I beg you, don't do what I did. There was a plague that came on Abimelech because he had... Abraham's wife and the judgment that fell on them is however they discovered this however long it took them to discover this suddenly none of the women in Abimelech's household wife uh, or, or, or uh, slaves or none of the women could have children and they recognized that something strange here and that's whenever God spoke to him and said this, this is the reason there's a plague on your house because you got another man's wife here and you need right now to take his wife back to him and I can restore your kingdom. And he says, I want you to go to Abraham and Abraham and have Abraham pray for you. Can, can you get your brain around this? Abraham lied to him and let him take his wife and God says, go have him pray for you and everything will be all right. <laughs> There's all kinds of reasons to object to that arrangement. Are you kidding me? He's the one that got me in trouble. Why should I submit to him? But Abimelech doesn't have a problem with this. As a matter of fact, he shows up and he has all these sheep and these cattle and a bunch of slaves. And he goes to Abraham and he gives them to him because it wasn't so much uh, honoring Abraham as it was honoring the God who spared him and had mercy on him. Even though it was an ignorant thing, God had mercy. And I don't think Abimelech in his knowledge and understanding of the gods understood any of them ever, have, ever had any mercy. This was a merciful God. So out of gratitude for Jehovah God and what he did for him, he goes and gives all this stuff to Abraham to appease God, no doubt. Now, there's a significant peril hidden in this portion of the story. And I would venture to guess most of you have never even thought about this. But here is the peril. Abraham allows Sarah to go live with the king. Got that right? And makes his public claim that he makes his public claim that she's his sister as so that the the king won't get mad at Abraham. So it, Abraham believes I will be in personal danger if I divulge the truth. And it just so happens the marriage was not consummated and the king therefore was not under the the uh uh, infraction of, of the laws of the land, nor an offense to God. But consider this. This is what I'm talking about the peril. Consider how close Abraham came to complicating matters, like, like he's been accustomed to doing so far anyway. But you know, do you understand Sarah's condition? She's, she's expecting a child. Only within one year of God promising that, She's going to have a child, and she's well on her way to having this child, so she's expecting, but we don't have any indication that Abraham knows this or even that Sarah knows this. But she is there, and she is expecting Abraham's child, and had Abimelech, and if they knew the of them know this, had Abimelech slept with her, how would we know whose child Isaac was? 
suddenly there are inheritance rights at risk here. God had promised Abraham your own son, but after he sends his wife away to pretend like she's the wife of another king and suddenly a child comes along, you know there's paternity questions here. And that's why it specifically says in the 20th chapter, the fourth verse, Abimelech had not yet gone near Sarah. Abraham was that close to losing a clear rightful claim to the child as the heir. See, God's plan is so intricate. It's so precise. Even when we don't know all the details that go into his plan, we have no idea sometimes how close we come to complicating matters. And all we can say when we read this and understanding all the things that God brings together in perfect timing and perfect order, if we don't mess it up, the only thing we can say is thank you, God, for watching out for us because we sure have the tendency and the capability of complicating matters unnecessarily. We get into the 21st chapter. And in the first few verses, it tells the story of Isaac is born. Here is, again, the irony of this. The birth of Isaac is a long-anticipated event. You know how many years this has been going on, the years when Sarah was barren and she just wants a child? It dates back to the earliest days when she was barren. She just wants a child. And then it develops into you're going to have a child. It's going to be the promised child. And then there's years beyond that. And then they have the wrong child. And it's years beyond. You know, this is going on. And suddenly, it's the birth of the promised child. This is an epic moment. And it's all wrapped up in a couple of sentences. It's like it's, it's a... It's a letdown. This ought to be chapters celebrating the final arrival of the heir. And it all comes down to the point where the heir is finally born. And Isaac was born. Poof, there it is. You know, what happened there? That went by way too fast. The narrative is way too short to do justice to this. But it moves fast. Child is born. Quickly, clinically, it's recorded. Abraham names him Isaac. Isaac means laughter, which is interesting because of Abraham's history of laughing at God. Sarah's history of laughing at God. We'll just name our child laughter. And Sarah says and explains, God gave me laughter, and everyone who hears this will laugh with me. So they all think it's really a big, not a joke, but you you, got to get a load of this. The fact that here I am, 90, maybe 91 years old, you got to laugh with me about this. It's not going to do any good to cry. And, you know, she, she had a good sense of humor about it. Whenever people would meet her and say, what a beautiful grandchild. She'd say, you're going to get a kick out of this. That's my child. <laughs> laugh with me. This one statement is this powerful testimony of the miraculous provision of God. It was essentially a double miracle. Not only did he heal 
a barren womb. He did it when she was biologically beyond the age of being able to, to, to bear a child had her womb been complete anyway. So it was a double miracle. And the narrative moves quickly beyond his birth to this pivotal conflict between Ishmael and Isaac. And on the very day that Isaac was weaned, scholars estimate that to be anywhere between two and four years, Abraham threw a great feast. And on the day of this feast, Sarah noticed Ishmael, who she never cared for, standing over there and mocking her son. This was his big day. And Ishmael is mocking him, and she makes a beeline to Abraham and says, get rid of that woman. Get rid of that child. I don't want them anywhere around here. I don't want them being uh, recipients of any of the blessings I've got. Get rid of them. That woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. And Abraham is obviously greatly distressed. This is his flesh and blood. But Sarah has demanded that they leave. So Abraham packs up a little food, a little water, takes Hagar, with whom he has very little uh, relational interest, but his son. And in this heart-rending, pathetic scene, he says, just go. Just go. But God reassures Abraham it's the right thing to do. And he reassures Abraham Ishmael will be taken care of. And he's, God tells Abraham, I'll, I'll, turn him, I'll turn him into a great nation. So with those reassurances, Abraham sends them out. They end up in the desert someplace. It looks like they're going to die. Hagar has resigned herself to we're not going to make it and puts the child who's about 13 years old, 14, under a shade tree. And she says, I'll be back in a minute. But she goes away somewhere, doesn't want to watch him die and just prays, Lord, this is, this is hopeless. We're going to die out here. And God spoke to her, and suddenly she sees a well. A well appears out of Noah. Why didn't I see this well before? And they draw from the water, and God promises and reassures her that they're going to be all right. Now, this is a very, very touching story, and the brief summary doesn't really do justice to the emotional intensity of what's happening here. But the one notable notable feature of this story that we need to address is we see the hand of God on Hagar and Ishmael. True to God's word, many would be blessed through him by their association with Abraham, but blessed by God is not a guarantee that they're going to be holy and righteous people. We already learned that Ishmael would not get along with his brethren, and he started out young, couldn't even get along with Isaac. And his descendants would be equally difficult. Now we come to Ishmael's descendants. Some of you have been waiting for us to talk about Ishmael and his descendants. There's a great deal of information out there today about Ishmael being the source, the fountainhead of uh, the Muslim community. I've heard that for many years, and and, uh, even at times I've passed that along. It sounds pretty clever. Uh, Isaac, Ishmael. Isaac, the Jews. Ishmael. The, uh, the Arabs, consequently, the Muslims. But uh, 
I come to you today with a, an, an interesting uh, clarification of that theory. And I don't know if you've ever given that in consideration, what it means to you, but here's a few things you need to consider. The fact is the land where Ishmael settled was already inhabited by people who they themselves were also uh, progenitors of all the uh, Arab population. So you got, a, and, and Isaac and his people were relatively small compared to them. So springing forth out of that land, uh, to, uh, producing the Arabs, uh, I, uh, Ishmael was only a small part of that. And the fact is, the land where Ishmael uh, he, uh, inhabited, that became a progenitor of all the Arabs, uh, the, the Muslims suggest that they trace their heritage back to Ishmael. This is one of the most popular tenets of their faith is we trace it back to Ishmael and Abraham is our father. Genetically, spiritually, father Abraham. The fact of the matter is, Muhammad never makes that claim personally. The Quran never makes that claim personally. It is Muslim scholars that impose that narrative on their Muslim faith. They are the ones that suggest Muhammad is a direct descendant of Ishmael. And there's not one shred of evidence that bears that out. This is what they use to prop up and legitimize and validate their religion for which there is absolutely no evidence whatsoever. So you take away the evidence of Islam and Muhammad uh, proceeding forth from Abraham and all you have left is a, is a violent, baseless religion. You have nothing of any validity and the, and the Christians... Uh, even uh, people in the Christian world who are trying to give some sort of credence to the uh, faith of Islam by saying, well, they, they, they worship Abraham just like we do. They, they venerate uh, Abraham. They worship Allah, and Allah is their word for the same God we worship. They do not worship the same God we worship. Their understanding of God, their description of God, what they believe God does, what... Uh, what is not the same God described in Holy Scriptures. Their God is an imposter compared to the one true living God revealed in the Holy Scriptures. So you cannot make that a commonality between their religion and ours. Then we have the issue of land rights, and this is my final point. We have this clear picture drawn of the promise of Canaan to the descendants of Abraham through Isaac. The conflict in the Middle East today is a continuation of that ancient dispute over rights to the land Israel occupies today. That's indisputable. The Jews that are there are claiming this was given to us. It belongs to us. The Israelis rely on that promise to the descendants of Isaac and then others in the Middle East have their own argument about their rights to the land. So that's where the conflict's coming from. The Palestinians 
claim the land is theirs because when nobody wanted it, and it was nothing but barren desert, they were still, they still had a nomadic presence in that land before the Balfour Declaration. The Balfour Declaration was a letter that was written to one of the Rothschilds saying England officially recognizes this homeland as being a, the, the right, right and proper place for the Jews to have a settlement. So it was a declaration there. And the Palestinians say, but we were already here. So there's a conflict. Who does this land belong to? And the Christian church typically sympathizes with Israel, and we typically defend their rights to the land. But the problem becomes more difficult when one considers that modern-day Israelis cannot trace their lineage back to the 12 tribes of Israel. Ten of them are considered lost tribes. Whenever this kingdom was split and ten tribes were left, uh, went to the north and two tribes to the south, then uh, I think it was Benjamin and uh, uh, Judah to the south. And, and the rest of the tribes went to the north. The north was, was demolished, dis, dispersed, dispelled. Uh, we don't know where those tribes went. They don't know. Ten lost tribes. Judah, Benjamin to the south. So if anybody had any opportunity, any chance whatsoever of tracing their heritage back, it would only be to a couple of tribes. But his, historians divide the world's 13 million Jews into three groups. You have the Middle Eastern Jews, or the Oriental Jews, some call them. You have the, the, the Sephardic Jews who uh, ended up in Spain and Portugal area. And then you have the Ashkenazi Jews from Europe. And the Ashkenazi Jews, the European Jews, who uh, were just groups of Europeans that assimilated into the Jewish faith over the centuries, comprise about 90% of American Jews and nearly 50% of all Israeli Jews, Ashkenazi Jews. And these were Jews that settled in Germany in the 9th century and developed their own language, which is called Yiddish. Now, this is the three groups of Jews that we have and out of these, if they comprise 50% of the Jews in, in uh, Israel, uh, European Jews, how many of those trace back to any of the tribes and how they trace back? It really complicates matters in our simplistic understanding of modern-day Israel, and they have a right to the land God gave them to uh, Abraham. He gave it to his, uh, his seed and all. Uh, who, where are they? Who are they? And we usually don't get this involved in trying to understand this issue. But uh, let me say it this way. Those Jews don't really know how they trace back. The only thing I can say is God does. God knows. And when God said, I will bless your descendants, it doesn't make any difference if I lost records or not. God never did lose the records, and he is good to his promise. So if there's a smattering of Jews over there that are still descendants, direct descendants of Isaac, of Abraham, and even if they don't know who they are, God still has a promise that he's going to bless, and that's the only reason that I find justification for having sympathies. No, it's not the only reason. That's, that's uh, for having uh, sympathies for those who are descendants of Abraham. 
not because they don't know, but because God does. But there's another reason why I have sympathy for Israel. And that is, I have sympathy for any religion that worships the same God I worship. Especially whenever their enemies don't. I have a commonality with them. I have a camaraderie with them. They do not understand Jesus Christ was the Son of God. They don't understand, do not understand he was the Messiah. Uh, they, they missed him, and I feel bad for that. Paul felt bad for it. I feel bad for it. I need to pray for them. Paul prayed for them. He says there's a blindness that has happened under Israel, and we understand that. But they still recognize the same God I recognize, and for that, I have to give them sympathy and preference over those who are worshiping a false god. So that's another tie I have with it. Now maybe God honors those, I will consider a possibility, who continue to identify themselves as Israelis, as, as uh, descendants of uh, ancient Israel and, and embrace Judaism uh, as though they are the modern day representatives. Maybe God honors that. I don't know that he does. I don't know that he doesn't. But it's more likely that God blesses Israel because they recognize him as the really only one true God. Uh, one thing for sure, there is definitely a strong conflict in that region that with Judaism and Christianity on one side and Islam on the other. And we have to be very careful about making blanket supports for Israel in all matters today when you take into consideration that is, do you have more loyalty toward Israel or Christians. Because whenever you get into the Middle East conflict, you have to understand there's a big conflict between Palestinians and Israelis. And there are some born-again Palestinians on the other side. And when they go to war, and you're over here rooting for Israel because, you know, Israel is the apple of God's eye and they are God's people, what about your Christian brothers on the other side that's involved in war and they're getting slaughtered? Does that make any difference to you? I didn't come here today to give you easy answers. I came to tell you here, this is a complicated issue. And when they got on the one side, Israel fighting for whatever they might be fighting over, and they don't even believe in Jesus Christ, who is very dear and special to me, and I got Palestinian brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ dying on the other side who are victims of war. Now how do you feel about it? I hope I've stirred the pot for you. Middle East is a mess. So the true conflict is not merely about land rights. It's truly a conflict of religions. A conflict between those who worship the one true God and those who worship a false deity of their own making. That's what the conflict is really about. And the land is a part of that conflict, but it's really a conflict between a false religion and a true religion. Heavenly Father, I thank you for strengthening me today and enabling me to be able to deliver this sermon.